It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Does the shooting of a PSNI officer in Oma bring echoes of a darker time in Northern Ireland? One year on from Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a time for peace talks. And later, we take you live to California, where a housekeeper's husband is charged with the murder of an Irish-born bishop. Do join our conversation online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight, VMTV. an eye officer fighting for his life after being shot in front of his young son. That is a reality that Northern Ireland woke up to today, a callous act that many thought had been consigned to the history books. Three men have been arrested after Detective Chief Inspector John Caldwell was hit a number of times, even as he lay on the ground while packing up his car following a training session at a sports facility in Oma last night. Amid a climate of political uncertainty, what do acts of violence like this say about the reality of life in Northern Ireland now and going forward? Well, joining me on Skype is Alan Rogers, a journalist at the Ulster Herald. You're very welcome to the programme. We might start, Alan, with just giving an update on the officer's condition. What can you tell us? The officer is currently still in hospital. He's described as... Uh, critical but stable. Um, it's understood that he uh, underwent surgery this morning and um, came through that. But obviously, the latest word from the PSNA is that he's still fighting for his life. And um, uh, it, it is still a very serious situation for the officer. I mean, the PSNI speaking today about this particular attack said it really was a miracle that only one person, albeit that being horrendous for that individual, but it's a miracle only one person was injured? Yes, there's no doubt about that, because what we have to remember is that the youth sport facility in Oma is one that is very widely used. Last night, there would have been around 80 people in the area at the time, and probably around 30 young children who were from a number of different teams who were receiving soccer coaching at the facility. Now, those people were within yards of the shooting when it took place. There were also members of the Oma Harriers Athletic Club who were also on the track, which is where the officer eventually fell and where, where he was again shot after coming from the car park area of the facility. So really, yes, it is a miracle that not more people were killed. But aside from that, the trauma that, they, that all of those who were there last night have, have undergone really, really is very serious. I saw parents coming there who were expecting to pick up their children in the normal way on a Wednesday night and pick them up and get home as quickly as possible and 
maybe some of them had homework to do, suddenly they were greeted with this scene where there were upwards on 10, 15 police cars. They weren't allowed in. The place was cordoned off. And then when their children were eventually came out, some of them were in tears. So it, it was a very serious situation for, for those couple of hours. And you talk about trauma there. And I think all of us, when we heard that this happened in Oma, were reminded of the unbearable trauma that the community there suffered back in the late 1990s. How is the wider community feeling there today? Well, I suppose the best way to describe that is that I'm part of a number of uh, WhatsApp groups, as everybody is now. And the sense of anger and frustration and really people absolutely fed up with what's happening here and fed up with the fact that 25 years after the Oma bomb and a couple of weeks after a public inquiry was launched into it, that we're still facing into this situation, that a police officer who was going about his normal business, who felt safe to do that on a Wednesday evening, that he was targeted in this way. And I think that has very serious repercussions for other police officers, not only in Oma, but throughout the North, who over this past number of years have become used to perhaps a, a more normal lifestyle. Now they're going to be reviewing their security and they're going to be saying to themselves, is going out and being part of the community really worth it? And I suppose that's ultimately is quite sad. Uh, well, joining me on Skype this evening as well is Deirdre Heenan, a professor of social policy at the University of Ulster. You're very welcome to the programme, Deirdre. We understand the trauma that the people of Oma are feeling after this awful incident, but the wider community in Northern Ireland have had 24 hours to absorb this shooting of a PSNI officer off duty, going about his normal business with his children. What are your own feelings at this point, Deirdre? Well, I think news of this attempted murder was met with shock and disbelief horror and revulsion that this could actually happen, that an off-duty police officer in his own community, volunteering to assist his own community, should be attacked in this way. And the nature of the crime, the barbaric nature of it, that he was shot in front of his children, in front of other children, when he was lying on the ground, he was shot and he, he tried to get the children away. I mean, it's absolutely revolting. But I suppose we can take some optimism from the political show of strength and the political unity and our politicians of all shades saying these people offer nothing, they have nothing to offer and they should be castigated by everyone in the community. So I think we have to take some optimism in the political show of unity that we've seen post this heinous attack. Is there a fear within Northern Ireland, Deirdre, that there has been an uptick in violence there in the last 12 months, 12 to 18 months, let's say? I don't think so, because what is quite clear is there is no support for this. There is no support for going back to violence. It is a reminder to us of the dark days of violence that we've put behind us. In April, we will be celebrating 25 years of the Good Friday Agreement, an enormous achievement, an achievement of peace. And I think really what this does is make people redouble their efforts to say, look what we've achieved. We are absolutely not going back. And as has already been said, think of the trauma of that 
individual child watching his parent being attacked in this way, but also the other children today getting up this morning and having to relive that over in their minds. I think it, there is there is no doubt in Northern Ireland that there's absolutely no appetite for this. And actually what it is really showing is if there's one thing we can all agree on is that we are not going back to those dark days of the Troubles. And yet, Deirdre, I'm conscious there has been widespread condemnation, but the politics in Northern Ireland, particularly over the last couple of years since Brightness, has all been about national identity, borders, and I'm wondering, is that sort of breathing life into those old grievances again? Well, I think we have to be clear here. What happened in Oma is unjustified and unjustifiable. And there can be no excusing it, no saying that whatever has happened in our democratic process that in some way allows this to happen or encourages this to happen. Yes, we have problems with our political process and we have to sort them out. I think after this initial show of unity, we, then we will start to focus on how can we move forward in terms of our democratic politics. Uh, this week, it seemed as though we we're edging towards a deal with the Northern Ireland Protocol. That has faded away towards the end of this week. But really what is noticeable is some parts of the British media, the Times, the Guardian, the Independent, are urging Rishi Sunak to do the deal, okay. to make a deal with the EU and move on because we desperately need progress. When we are treading water, we're actually moving backwards. All right, um, we'll leave it there for now. I want to go to my uh, panel. Thanks to Alan and to Deirdre. I'm joined here in studio by Senator Lisa Chambers of Fianna Foyle, Sinn Féin TD John Brady and John O'Brennan, Professor of European Politics at Maynooth University. Uh, John, I'm going to um, start with you because, as Alan was saying there, you know, the fear that this will have created within the PSNI, it upends this notion that they perhaps had been accepted by both sides of the community and were free to go about their work in Northern Ireland now. Yeah, I think both Alan and Deirdre are right. This was a horrific reminder of the worst of the past in Northern Ireland. But I think, as Deirdre said, there is this great determination on all sides to never go back to the worst of the past. And I can think you can see that in the response of Michelle O'Neill and Geoffrey Donaldson today issuing a joint statement that was very significant in the context of the political vacuum that's been there in Northern Ireland for some time. But I think Deirdre is also right that these attacks have been sporadic. You know, if we go back to the 25 years to 1998, there have been some terrible things that have happened, but they have been the exception and not the norm. And I think there is a determination on all sides, whatever the level of the impasse in politics, that this kind of violence can never, ever be countenanced. So, so the condemnation that we've seen right across the uh, UK, Northern Ireland and the Republic today, you feel that the response has been the same? Yeah, it's been shocking, I think, in some senses because of the fact that it's Oma. There's the trauma that that community went through in 1998 when 29 people died in that bombing. And remember, that bombing came months after the peace agreement had been signed. Um, 
OMA has gone through a lot in that period. The other reason it's shocking, of course, is that it takes place in a community centre where actually Officer Caldwell was acting in the same way that parents do all throughout the island, helping their kids and probably trying to bring communities together. And bringing the communities together. I'm wondering, Lisa Chambers, because um, Deirdre just mentioned it there briefly, the sort of instability that we have seen in Northern Ireland um, for the last number of years, not just the recent uh, issues around Stormont. What impact does the vacuum that sort of leadership in Northern Ireland what impact does that void create do you think? Yeah I I think that the void is it's not ideal you don't want that situation to persist but I'm very slow to connect that with this attack. You don't think think there's any link? Well I think if we try and and find some sort of justification for it or some explanation for it linking it to the lack of political uh, so politics is not operating in Northern Ireland currently and the fact that it is quite broken. Uh, I think that's, it, if drawing that link I think is unhelpful. But I, I suppose nobody's trying to justify it, but I'm wondering does this create an environment that allows you know, a group like, let's say, the new IRA to, to foster again? Potentially. I mean, I think when Brexit first happened, and it's 2016 when, when obviously when, when the vote took place, there was a lot of concern that that might happen. But I don't think it's transpired, actually. There's been, you know, r- random acts of violence since that point, but not what we had feared or thought was possible. So that's a positive. But just to say, in, in terms of the attack in Northern Ireland, obviously to join with other colleagues, North and South, condemning what has happened. And, you know, when I hear about the detail of the night, as a parent, you can only imagine the anguish for those parents that arrived to pick up their kids on a regular night where they were at soccer training and not having access, not knowing were they okay. Um, the trauma that those children will, have, will be dealing with and will deal with and those families. So my, my call and my, my hope following this is obviously that Officer Caldwell makes a full recovery and I hope and pray that he does. Uh, but I also hope that the perpetrators are brought to justice, that the full rigour of the law is applied and that a very strong message is sent that this is not acceptable and um, will not be tolerated. John, do you have any fear at all that there is, I think it was uptick was the word I used, uh, uptick in violence in, in Northern Ireland? Uh, because we have seen this, this yeah. unfortunately isn't just a one-off attack. There have been numerous attacks in the last couple of years, particularly on police officers and prison officers. Yeah, well, just at the start, can I say uh, heartfelt uh, solidarity to DCI um, Cadwell and his, his uh, family um, and join with the, you know, the um, tsunami of condemnation that has come about following this cowardly criminal attack on a PSNI, PSNI officer, um, you know, doing uh, community work. Um, I don't think there is an appetite in any community anywhere on this island for acts like this. Um, and the perpetrators of this criminal act, thankfully, three have been arrested, um, but they represent a minority of people. Um, They have no mandate whatsoever. Um, And it's important that anyone that has any evidence or information brings it forward immediately to ensure that no other acts like this can happen because we're 25 years into a a hard-won peace process. And acts like this serve no purpose whatsoever. These are acts of um, crime against the peace process. And... They have no mandate whatsoever. All right, and obviously our thoughts go out to um, Detective Caldwell and to all of his family. We wish him a speedy recovery. We're going to take a quick break now, but my panel will be staying with me as we take a look at a year of war in Ukraine. What has it changed for Europe? And is our neutrality now up for debate? 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You're very welcome back. Well, this time, one year ago, Vladimir Putin was pouring his Russian troops across the border into Ukraine. It was supposed to be a short war, the aim to take Kyiv almost immediately, but that didn't happen. And one year on, Russia and Ukraine are locked in a gruelling war that shows no signs of ending soon. Well, let's take you to Kyiv now. News correspondent Will Dennis Lowe is standing by. Well, good evening to you. Bring us through, I suppose, how Ukrainian people are feeling and what morale is like among Ukrainian troops 365 days on from this war beginning. Well, first of all, if we cast our minds back a year ago, thousands of people were getting into their cars or fleeing uh, on trains here from the capital, Kyiv, as Russian forces, as you rightly said, uh, were advancing on the city. Now, if we fast forward uh, to today, it is a very different situation. Kyiv uh, still stands, and it is a city that just this week alone has welcomed the prime ministers of Spain, Italy, a delegation from the US, and of course, President Biden, who is here on Monday, just which really speaks to the added sense of security uh, here in Kyiv, considering there were fears a year ago that Russia uh, would take it imminently. The situation for people here on the ground, well, they've settled into an uncomfortable normalcy. Air alerts, sirens ring out pretty much every day here in the capital, as they do across much of the country. But for many people here, it just blends into their daily lives. Some people choose just to really ignore them, not go to shelters and carry on business as usual. But of course, Kyiv is not the same situation as we're seeing in the east of the country, where incredibly bitter fighting continues. And of course, we see daily reports of fear shelling in more eastern uh, cities as well, a constant reminder of how many civilians continue to lose their lives on a daily basis since the full-scale invasion. Um, there is fear that given the fact that we are at this sort of one-year juncture, that there's going to be a Russian offensive, a spectacular tomorrow. What do people expect at this point? What is known? Well, according to Ukrainian intelligence, they do believe that there is a high likelihood that we'll see an increased barrage of Russian missiles. And some 
preparations have been taken. For example, schools will switch to remote learning for the anniversary uh, on Friday. People in non-essential uh, jobs are being asked to work from home as possible. There are more uh, security sweeps we're seeing across parts of the country as well. The message from the chief of the military intelligence is that they are expecting an increase in missile attacks, but they do say that they aren't expecting anything extraordinary. All right, we'll leave it there. Will and Keith, thank you for that update. Now, I'm joined by historian Geoffrey Roberts, Emeritus Professor of History at University College Cork. You're very welcome uh, to the programme, Professor. You don't believe that the West should continue to give military aid to Ukraine. Why? Actually, that's not true. Um, <laughs> this war would have been over months ago uh, had it not been for uh, Western support, military support for Ukraine. Hundreds of thousands of people's lives would have been saved. Ukraine would have been spared the devastation of months of war. But having said that, you know, <laughs> you, the West can't just turn off its military aid uh, as, as, it, as if it was a switch. Say, OK, we've changed our mind. We're no longer going to militarily support you. No, no, the West is obligated to continue its military support for um, uh, uh, Ukraine. The question is, what's the purpose of that military support? And if its purpose is to help uh, defend uh, Ukraine, then I'm all, all in favour of it. But here's the thing, it's the most important point I want to make. This Western military strategy of continuing to uh, aid Ukraine, supplying it with defensive weapons, has to be accompanied by a diplomatic strategy to try and achieve some, some kind of peace. Because the longer this war goes on, the, the more devastation Ukraine is going to suffer, the worst, the worst outcome uh, is, going to, is, is going to be. Uh, Jeffrey, you said that if the West hadn't come to Ukraine's aid in the way they had, <clears throat> that the war would have ended a long time ago and hundreds and thousands of lives um, would have been saved. How would it have ended? Well, it, it could have it could have ended uh, last April when uh, Russia and Ukraine were engaged in these peace negotiations uh, in Istanbul, and it seems that there was some kind of a, a draft agreement. Ukraine would have lost territories; it would have had to agree to become a neutral state. It wouldn't have been allowed to um, join NATO, but the war the war would have come to an end. It would have been a very bitter pill for Ukraine to to to, to, to swallow, but I think a much better uh, outcome than the one that Ukraine's looking at now. But what seems to have happened is that under pressure, or at least advice uh, from Western governments, uh, the Ukrainians uh, dis decided uh, uh, to, uh, to fight on, to end those uh, uh, peace negotiations. Now, in giving this advice to Western governments, they weren't just thinking uh, about Ukraine in this position, they were pursuing their own agenda, their own agenda of weakening Russia, of destroying it as a great power, of overthrowing, of overthrowing Putin, and of course of uh, maintaining their, their own position, Western position of dominance uh, in, 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 in international relations. So what's actually, what's actually was started off as quite a limited kind of conflict of war uh, between Russia and Ukraine has developed into a full-scale proxy war between uh, Russia on the one hand and NATO and, and, and the West on the other. Which means, of course, we're not just talking about <laughs> a very a devastating uh, a, a military conflict in Europe. We're also talking about a war so just... that potentially, let's make this point, it's a very important point, is potentially catastrophic for the whole of Europe and for the whole of the world. Because while this war goes on, the longer it goes on, the risk you... remains of escalation, including at the nuclear level. OK, you wrote a piece in the Irish Times last month where you said that Putin has shown restraint 
given how the West has responded. How has he shown restraint? Well, restraint in, in, in his responses to Western escalation. The West is supplying arms, it's supplying intelligence, it's um, training military personnel, it's providing targeting information. Do you Western actually technicians think, like... Sorry, Jeffrey, do you actually think the people of Mariupol or the people of Kharkiv or Kherson or eastern uh, Ukraine at the moment would say that he has shown restraint? Do you actually think the people who have suffered and died would say that? Uh, I'm, sure, I'm, sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure I wouldn't. But uh, uh, the point I'm trying to make here is that the best way to help the people of, uh, of Mariupol, Kharkov, Kiev, all Ukrainians, is to bring this war to an end. And where is to the evidence? End this catastrophe. Okay, where is the evidence, uh, Jeffrey, that Russia wants to compromise, that it wants talks, that it wants to bring this war to an end? I mean, Putin has staked his whole legacy on a win, surely. But what what kind of win does Putin want, right? What are Putin's goals in relation to this war? The war started because Putin saw NATO's build-up of military build-up of Ukraine and Russia's borders as a security threat. Okay, well, no, people would say the war started, with all due respect, because Putin decided to send his tanks into a sovereign country yeah, yeah, and to attack he, he, them. That's how the war started. Absolutely, but he did it for a reason. You have to understand the reason. If you don't understand the reason, you won't understand what he's trying to so achieve. Do you feel he was provoked and that the West continues to provoke by it's sending Putin, aid? It, it's, Putin, it's Putin's war. It's his prime responsibility. Absolutely, right? But certainly there was an element of provocation by Ukraine and okay. by the West. So they, they have their own responsibility for this, for this disaster, for Ukraine, for Europe uh, and the world. So just to be clear, you feel that the West could have sat back here, not provided any aid to Ukraine, even though they were a sovereign country who was under attack from a much stronger military force than Russia. They should have sat back and ultimately there would have been peace talks and Ukraine should have compromised with Russia. That's the solution here. Absolutely not. I don't think the West should have sat back. I think the West should have actively intervened in the conflict to bring it to an end, to bring about a okay. ceasefire. But Ukraine to, would have to had get, to compromise. To the Just best. to be clear, finish, Ukraine can, can here I, would have I, had to compromise. They would have had to hand over their territories. Absolutely. To and there would be there would have been compromises okay. on the Russian side. And what, and what think, message? And I just just one I final question, Jeff, because I think this West is very important. What message now. would have that would that have sent? if they had compromised, if they said, yes, invade us, we'll compromise and we'll give you, you know, some of the territories that you're looking for, what message would, have that, would that have sent to, to future Putins, to future aggressors? This Russian invasion of Ukraine is not the first time one sovereign state has invaded another sovereign state. You may recall okay. that Britain and the United States invaded Iraq in 2003. NATO attacked Serbia in, in, in 1999. That didn't mean the whole edifice of international relations collapses. And had, had Putin succeeded in his goals in relation and actually I think he will succeed, actually, by the way, that's what's going to happen. It's not going to be the end of the world as okay. we know it. It will be a tragedy for Ukraine, but it's not a disaster for the whole of human civilization. What will be a disaster for human civilization if this war escalates into a nuclear war between NATO and the West? That's the danger we need to bear in mind all the time okay. when we're assessing our attitude to this war. Okay, Professor Jeffrey Roberts, uh, thank you for speaking to us this evening. I'm going to go to my panel here, Lisa Chambers, John Brady, and John O'Brennan are still with me. And I am also joined by Kieran Allen of the Irish Neutrality League. Uh, 
um, John O'Brennan, I'm going to come to you first. Do you think um, the West were right to respond in the way that they did to Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Yes, absolutely. And so you would fundamentally disagree with Jeffrey Roberts? Jeffrey is somebody that I've admired as a historian for many years. It is so sad to see him demean himself by saying the things that he has just said. It is outrageous and shameful because what he was advocating was that Ukraine should just surrender to imperialist aggression. Jeff and others on the left of politics and academia have spent their whole lives fighting imperialist aggression. And yet when it comes to Russian imperial aggression and imperialism, they have this blind spot. They just don't see it. He completely ignores the agency of Ukrainians. He also, I think, completely ignores the trajectory of Vladimir Putin's violent ultranationalism. That Putin is a sociopathic maniac, and his aim since the beginning of this war has been to crush and obliterate Ukraine. They're very open in the way that they say this. They say Ukraine is not a natural country, it doesn't have a right to exist, and we want to crush it and sublimate okay. it completely. For you at this point, do you think there should be peace talks, or do you think this is a win-lose situation? It is a dreadful war. It is going to get worse. There are many echoes of 1915-16, but it is up to the Ukrainians to decide at what point they have to negotiate and to compromise with the people who have invaded their land but do you and their territory. I think the point, I suppose, maybe that Jeffrey's making is, is that ultimately where this is going to end up, do you think? This... Or can, or do you think the goal here is to defeat Russia, continue to support Ukraine until they defeat Russia? End of story. Win well, or, what or is loser. especially outrageous about what Jeff has said and ridiculous is this notion that all these countries in Central and Eastern Europe, mm -hmm. and I've spent the last 25 years from Estonia down to Bulgaria visiting and talking to people, they have this terrible sense of insecurity because they had been attacked by Russia so many times in the past. Imagine if you're Estonian and in your family you have this memory, okay. 1940, of being attacked by Russia. But just to go back to the point that Jeffrey was making, this is a year on into this war. It is showing no signs of reaching a, an end point. Will it ultimately end up in negotiations? And if that is ultimately where it's going to end up, should we not get there sooner to save human life? Sometimes wars don't end with negotiation, they end with defeat and even collapse. I mean, this is what happened okay. to Russia in 1917. And that's what we should get here? It's not out of the question that something like that could happen in the foreseeable future. Russia okay. is the stronger force, it has all kinds okay. of advantages, especially Let in manpower, but anything could happen in the months ahead. Uh, Kieran, what do you think should happen at this point? Do you agree with Jeffrey or with John? I don't agree with either. Uh, first of all, I think that Russia is an imperialist power, is trying to occupy Ukraine. But I also happen to remember that America is an imperialist power, invaded Iraq, invaded Afghanistan. And when we look at Britain, we can hardly think Britain is somehow a defender of self-determination around the world. So I'm for neither side. But I do think, of course, there should be peace negotiations. I believe the Irish government, which is supposed to be a neutral country, we're supposed to be a neutral country, uh, we should be calling for peace because when you look at it, what's actually happening? 100,000 soldiers are, have suffered military casualties. 8 million people uh, are refugees. 
And we're hearing now we should continue until defeat or victory. The only victors in this war are the arms manufacturers. Today they've announced they've had the best year well, just, ever just, for selling just, arms I suppose for 40 if, years. If, if Ukraine had to surrender some of its territories, Putin might feel that he actually is a victor in this war. I think that Russia is a weakened power. The idea that Russia somehow is going to trample across Europe and invade us is absolutely fantasy. No, but let's just go back to the idea of you know, if there's peace talks here, if there's compromise, if there's negotiation, and Ukraine has to surrender some of its territories, then you said it's only the you know those who are selling arms who'd win. Putin himself might feel that he has won. It has worked. Well, he has succeeded well, sorry, in what he set out are, to do. What, what Perhaps you, not to the full yeah, extent, but, but there is success right. there. But what are, you say, what are you saying about Israel? Israel last night went in and murdered. 10 people in the Gaza. It has been okay. an illegal occupation. Okay, have you seen the West? Right, okay. no, We're not talking about the West. We're talking about Israel. Have you seen the West give as much money to the Palestinians to defend themselves against okay. Israel? Can of course they don't. This is a proxy war fought by two just imperial just powers as well as Lisa. a legitimate defence of the Ukrainians. What do you think should happen at this point? Obviously, I think everybody would love to see peace talks, but ultimately, as John O'Brennan has said, it's a matter for the Ukrainian people. And our response to date and that of Western Europe has been to support Ukraine in helping it to defend its territory. It is a sovereign nation. It has been illegally invaded. The suggestion that somehow Ukraine should just concede territory to appease Putin so he might trot on back to, to Moscow and all will be fine, I, I think is just fantasy. And you can see the reaction to other neighbouring European states that are genuinely fearful that they will be next. So what we are doing now is investing in security for Europe because there is war in Europe. Ukraine may not be a member state yet, but it is a candidate member state and it will eventually become a member of the European Union. Is and there a difficulty though here because, as I said, we're a year on. Mm -hmm. um, there is um, no talk of the West uh, suspending its support um, for Ukraine. But there is talk of China getting involved and perhaps um, you know, showing its support for Russia. If that is the case, this could grind on and on and on. Yeah, that, that's a possibility, and I'm, and I'm aware of, of the possibility of China showing more support to Russia. Mm. I think that would be a historic mistake on the part of China, and I hope it doesn't go down that path. OK, and but even, if, it, if it does, we're we no on, there's no resolution. Do we continue? Do we continue? Um, to support Ukraine in trying to defend its territory. Well, yes, the position of the Irish government at this, mo at this moment and will, and will not change is that we support Ukraine's 10-point peace plan as published by President Zelensky. He has addressed our parliament, we are working with other member states in the European Union and we are supportive of the Ukrainian people. I don't see that changing. Of course we want peace talks, but at the moment I don't see a space for that right now. Okay, John Brady. Well, I think at the outset it's important that we all reiterate our, our support for the territorial integrity uh, for Ukraine, and I think that has to be sacrosanct here um, as a starting point. Um, and that means a, a full and unilateral withdrawal of all Russian troops from all areas within uh, Ukraine. Now, there was a, okay, a, 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 really, a really important development this evening at the UN uh, General Assembly, where 141 countries voted in support of a resolution calling yeah, for a, 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 a just peace. Let's talk about the countries peace. that abstained. But but seven countries, but I think that should be a catalyst now. And the one thing I do agree with Jeffrey, and I, I disagree with an awful lot, and that is Sorry, a diplomatic. Do you think that is going to be a catalyst? No. Well, a well, I, 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 I think what we need is Does a diplomatic strategy. Impact? What we need now is a diplomatic strategy uh, to move towards peace. And okay, absolutely, so do you agree the Ukrainians. With, with, with Kieran at this point, that actually we need to change the focus rather than you know it being about supporting Ukraine. 
Ukraine with aid that actually uh, we, as a neutral absolutely, country, absolutely. should be encouraging Ukra peace Ukra talks. Ukraine Which is it? has a fundamental right to defend its territorial borders, and absolutely, I would not um, yeah. argue with that. But there has to be a diplomatic strategy, and I think Ireland should play a leading role in in that um, you know move along with like-minded nations to try find space okay. for a peaceful resolution because ultimately I believe it will the war will end by people sitting around the table um, and okay. you know a peaceful resolution uh, will come about in terms of our own neutrality Kieran do you feel it has been undermined in any way by the Irish response to this war totally the Irish government is using this war to undermine neutrality the political elite in this country have always been against neutrality. The people, about 70% in recent polls, are for neutrality. But they've been undermining neutrality since they brought US troops into Shannon, which I might add was to bring people for torture. Uh, we turned a blind eye to all that. They've been undermining neutrality. And the latest move now is to send, apparently, Irish soldiers to train and enhance, quote, this is what they say, enhance the military capacity of the Ukrainian armed forces. This is intervening in a war without the permission of the doll, without, if you like, the triple lock that was uh, uh, supposedly agreed. This is obviously designed to undermine neutrality. OK, Lisa Chambers. Sorry, any suggestion that the Irish government is using this war to undermine our neutrality is an outrageous statement, not based on any evidence or any fact whatsoever, and I reject that completely. And also, the suggestion that the triple lock is required shows a lack of understanding as to what the triple lock actually is. It is not required for training missions. It is required if you send more than 12 troops to a combat zone. We are not doing that. No okay, but European the government has agreed to send some Irish troops to, to assist a in an EU defence mission. In, a, in an EU training mission. There's a big distinction. No member state, none, are sending troops to Ukraine. So the triple lock is not required. We are also freezing Russian assets. We are submitting funds to European Peace Fund. We are housing over 70,000 Ukrainian refugees. We are participating in supporting Ukraine. This so, is one so element of that. So are so you are, saying we're not neutral, actually? But we, are, we are military neutral, which is a, which, but we're not neutral when it comes to our political support for Ukraine. And there is but a what, difference. What, what, what actually draw, is that, I suppose, Lisa Kier, where do you where, But where do you draw the line? If you've got a problem with sending our troops to train other yeah. troops to do things like uh on, on I suppose what Kieran's saying is that we're, we're pushing the boundaries all the time. Yeah. Well, we're, we are sending troops that have specialisations in, okay. in explosives, in disarming explosives, in okay. medical training, in engineering. But if you have a problem with that, do you have a problem with us housing refugees? Do you have a problem with us sending money for peace supports? Do you have a problem with us freezing Russian assets? Okay. Where do you draw the line? John O'Brennan? Are we really neutral where genocide is being committed mm -hmm. by one side against another? Do you we think we to, shouldn't? Do you we think we have, need to park this idea of neutrality in this country? We have to put aside this ridiculous emotional attachment to neutrality. Why? We, we have Why? How, always, why has it not served us well to this point? We, has, we, we have the luxury of geography. We are not positioned where the Estonians are positioned. We haven't but, had the same historical experience. Couldn't we argue that we should just take advantage of that? Fine. We've been free-riding on the back of the American security guarantee through Article 5 of NATO since 1949. That's the reality. I'm saying simply that we should face up to this. The entire European security system is being reconstituted. We cannot, in my view, remain on the side. Okay. All of the partners that we have in the European Union, in the Baltic states and elsewhere, they gave us their steadfast support on Brexit when we really needed it on the existential question yes, of the but, border. You know, we Lisa need to said, support them. Per capita, we have taken in more refugees uh, in Ireland than any other European country. No, that's, so, that's, so not, that's not true. 
That isn't true? No, bordering member states have taken in more. But okay. we, are, we are one of the, 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 the I suppose, the, the bigger countries. Okay, in but, we, ha so we, we but we have taken We have we certainly have yeah. contributed a lot. There is no doubt about that. All I'm saying is that the security landscape in Europe is changing very significantly. We're moved okay. in you think it's to, to join almost a new Cold War alliances. between the United States and China, uh, and we have to recognise What is that. Sinn Féin's position here? Well, Sinn Féin's position is we're a neutral country, military neutral country, and we have to, have to invest in that. And that means um, you know, bringing our own defence forces up to uh, the establishment numbers. And, and unfortunately, we've allowed okay. our defence forces fall way below their okay, 50. It's kind, well, it's, it's, kind it's, of not the point It's not, because be the honest. important point here is John. that is now being used uh, for reviews to be carried out to withdraw from UN missions such as in the Golan Heights okay. um, and invest, invest our, our, our defence forces into EU battle groups. There is a continuous okay. attempt here to erode and undermine Irish neutrality and that, the evidence of that is, is clear for anyone to see okay. where the Foreign Affairs Minister uh, and the Tarnista now have both okay, questioned so the triple lock mechanism and called okay. for a clear, review John, and an undue you don't that. support the idea of sending Irish troops um, on this EU defence mission to, to train um, Ukrainian troops. You don't. Well, there, 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 there's a major issue there with uh, mines, landmines, mm. over uh, um, half a million. Yes, um, so do you agree we're, we're dealt with last year. It's a yes um, or no. What I would like to see is it being done under a UN mandate. That is not possible now at this point in time. It's not a UN As as I said, at this point in time, that is not possible. Because From a humanitarian, humanitarian perspective, how could anyone disagree with okay. assisting, uh, well? you know, dealing with mines, landmines okay, right across words. many areas of, of, of Ukraine? But okay. okay. it cannot be seized upon okay. by the government to continuously okay, erode our, our, our neutrality. Can I clarify? Okay. A UN mandate is only required for UN missions. This is not a yeah. UN mission. And the Thonish Minister for Foreign I, I, Affairs. I never said it was. You, you did. You said it. No, no, you said no. it's not I said possible. I would much, I would much prefer it done under a UN mandate, which is not possible. It's not a UN mission. That's what I said. That's what I said. We're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately. Uh, my thanks to John Brady, to John O'Brennan and to Kieran Allen for joining us this evening. Lisa is going to be staying with me as we take a look at what is being done about the abuse of female politicians. And we're also going to go live to California for the very latest on the murder of an Irish-born bishop. Stay with us. <laughs> California now, where a housekeeper's husband has been charged with the murder of an Irish-born bishop. 69-year-old David O'Connell was found dead on Saturday afternoon in the bedroom of his home. Let's get more with Iris Spritzer in San Francisco. Iris, you might start by telling us what we know about David O'Connell. Well, this is a tragic murder, of course, which has shocked uh, the Los Angeles community and, uh, of course, the broader uh, Catholic community, a, uh, an act of violence that uh, we are still trying to uh, find out answers for. Uh, a man is in custody. Uh, it is a, a man named Carlos Medina. He is the husband of somebody who uh, was working as a uh, housekeeper for uh, Bishop O'Connell, uh, for Archbishop O'Connell, uh, according to the Los Angeles District Attorney, uh, Carlos Medina has actually uh, admitted to uh, carrying out this killing, but we still uh, don't know the motive, and uh, the, he will be 
arraigned uh, next month, and, and we surely will begin to find out more uh, as this case unfolded. But they have connected, reportedly, uh, a car that was uh, seen on surveillance video at uh, Archbishop O'Connell's residence, uh, as well as recovered a firearm from uh, Carlos Medina's residence, which, uh, which is undergoing tests right now. But uh, it appears that uh, we have a likely culprit, but what we don't know, of course, is what would have uh, driven somebody to kill this person who, as we've learned, uh, with the outpouring of, of love and support over the last few days, was tremendously uh, important to so many people in Los Angeles. Um, as you said there, he was found uh, dead on Saturday afternoon in his home, and it sparked a intense uh, manhunt for the killer, didn't it? Right. Well, in the immediate aftermath, uh, police really uh, sprang into action, trying to uh, locate clues and evidence and, and talk to neighbors and, and look at video. And, of course, uh, were able to relatively uh, quickly uh, locate and uh, arrest this suspect, Carlos Medina. Uh, and attention in, in the aftermath of the killing has now uh, really focused on who uh, Archbishop O'Connell was his backstory, what he meant to his uh, his congregation and to the uh, the greater Los Angeles community. Uh, he's somebody uh, who was born in C County Cork in 1953, came to Los Angeles in the late 70s after completing his studies in Ireland, uh, and then uh, since that time worked for uh, for many years in, in some of the uh, lower income areas of Los Angeles, first a largely African-American community, which then uh, morphed into a, a Spanish-speaking community. Okay. He was a, a Spanish speaker and was really reportedly able to connect with his congregation in that way. All so right. uh, the uh, really just, just a lot of screen and sadness about this, uh, what appears to be a senseless killing. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you for that uh, update. Iris Spitzer there in Los Angeles. Well, a special meeting organised by the Kyung Korla, Sean O'Farrell, took place in the last few days to discuss the threats and intimidation facing female politicians. Lisa Chambers is still with me, and you attended uh, that meeting uh, last night with a lot of female um, TDs. Were you surprised by what your fellow TDs were telling you about sort of the, the fear, the intimidation or the abuse that they are um, receiving? Uh, no, because uh, it's become part and parcel of the job, I guess. You, um, I think what came out of last night was the realisation, it, it was a reminder to all of us that this actually shouldn't be acceptable and it shouldn't be normalised, but we've become so used to it. And um, you were hearing stories from other colleagues and... Um, it just showed you that it is quite widespread. But we weren't surprised. We had a presentation from Maureen Gaffney, psychologist, who just spoke to us more generally about harassment of women in society. And then she spoke a bit about the political space and that the evidence would show that all politicians obviously get lots of online abuse. That's par for the course now. But that female politicians do get more. And that is borne out in lots of studies. Uh, was the young Corliss surprised or taken aback? in any way by the testimony of all of these uh, female politicians? Yeah, I suppose in the room was all was all women, except for the Count Corla and the last Cahirlik of the Shanid, and um, we had the, the head, head of the Iraqis as well there. So I, I think they were a little bit surprised um, 
at the scale of it. And the statistics that were presented by Maureen as well were, were quite high. But the view of the room was that you're kind of you're preaching to people that already know this stuff. We kind of need to get the information out there. Um, so was there talk then, Lisa, about how and what could be done to protect female TDs? Well, insofar as the next step that we're taking is the establishment of a task force that will comprise of group leaders and party leaders and also the Women's Caucus, Women for Election as well, to try and look at the key issues and, and put forward some solutions. So we didn't go into detail last night about what we're going to do about it, but we did set up this, this group that would look at it in more detail. Um, the senators are meeting next Tuesday to do have a similar exercise. We were also joined by two members of Agartha Shikona and the head of the Office uh, of the Legal Advisor in the Iraq as well. So, so you feel this has been taken seriously? Um, I, I do. I think it was, um, you know, it was it was comforting, I suppose, last night to be there with other colleagues and realise that this is, that we're all in the same boat, effectively. Um, but also to know that it, the Iraqis is taking it seriously. We, we know now that Pascal Donoghue will be, I think, very soon signing off on measures to allow all Iraqis members to avail of security measures where Agartha has deemed it necessary. So, so we're that, talking about CCTVs at your home, yeah, that type of thing? Yeah, um, personal, personal alarms. I don't want to... Uh, alarm the public about this. We are we are trying to be proactive and preemptive in our approach in that we've seen other countries, you look even to the UK, where members of, of Parliament there have lost their lives in the course of their work. So we're acknowledging that there does appear, appear to be an okay. escalation of abuse online and trying to take steps to prevent any, any All right. harm. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, thank you to Lisa Chamber. That's it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast and we'll be back here on Monday night. Take care. Goodbye. 